Sometimes you wonder if um, the things you say to your kids, you know, they're rubbing off. You know, I think they are sometimes in our family. My daughter, just before they left the children's church, stopped, turned around, looked at me and said, be a good pastor. And she laughed. <laughs> so maybe she's heard that, you know, something like that a time or two. So I shall endeavor to do so. Would you please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 8 today? It was wonderful to worship the Lord last week uh, during our Easter service. As we prayed, though, this morning as we opened the service, we celebrate resurrection every Sunday and every day of our lives. Um, You know that's why we meet on Sundays, by the way, right? That Sunday is the first day of the week. It's the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's why the church began to meet on the first day of the week, that we would celebrate the resurrection every week. And so we're going to do that today by going back into the study of the book of John and see that through this gospel, John communicates with us that there is life in Jesus, the Son of God. And today we're going to see a passage here that points us exactly to who Jesus is as the source of that light, because we see in John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20 today, that Jesus is the light of the world. I invite you to follow along as we read these verses here today in John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Lord, we now ask that you would meet with us over the next little bit as we open your word together today, as we study its truth, as we seek your help, the help of the Holy Spirit, to apply these things to our hearts today, to show us exactly who we are in light of your word, who show us exactly who you say that we are. And to show us exactly who Jesus is, the light of the world who has come to shine that light in the darkness, to call men and women unto himself, that we may live lives pleasing to you and live in eternity with you. We ask today that you would challenge our hearts, that you would show us our sin, you would point us to the Savior, and we would walk out of this place different than we came in today because... Your truth has found purchase in our lives and hit home. And you have done a marvelous thing in us today. In your name we pray. Amen. The renowned author and lay theologian C.S. Lewis once wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. 
And just as the blazing light in the sky that you woke up to and saw today, as you've seen over the last week here in Michigan as the temperatures have risen in our false spring, <laughs> the, that, sky, that, that blazing light in the sky is the self-evidence and the revealer of everything around us. And just like that light in the sky is, so the light of the gospel is the means for all that we have and the illumination of all things in our lives. And at the very heart of the gospel message is the one who illumines all things. Because without him, we would see nothing. Without him, we would have no hope. Without him, life is pointless. And the one in the middle of it all, and on whom it all depends, is Jesus. And here in John 8, Jesus reveals himself as the light of the world. And we see from what he says, the ramifications that that carries in our lives and the continued descent that that draws from those who are of his own nation. And what we see here in this passage before us today is because Jesus is the light of the world, his calling, illumination, and testimony of all things must be embraced. My friend, there are no two ways about it. There is only one way. There's only one Savior, there is only one Lord, and that is Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see here today is is that because he is that light, and we're going to look at the claim that Jesus makes here of himself, of of his equality again with God, from the things that that go on both in 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 the feast that has just taken place, but also in the history of Israel, because he is this light of the world, everything he says, his calling to us to place our faith in him, his calling to those who have placed faith in him to be his disciples, his illumination of everything in our lives, and the testimony of what he says all of it is true and all of it must be embraced in our lives to enjoy eternity and to live in peace and harmony with God. And Jesus says that here today and we see the responses that are given in light of these remarks that Jesus makes. So first of all, let's open in verse 12 with this great declaration that Jesus makes. Now, before we do that, let's get a little bit of background on the setting of where we are. A few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, we discussed these first few verses, the last verse in chapter 7, into the first few verses of chapter 8. And I shared with you then that that most likely um, those verses are not tied to what has been happening in the book of John. And we talked all about that. If you want to hear that, you can go back and listen to it on our website in in the archives there about why that is and where those verses probably better fit. Instead, though, um, this passage that then before us, starting in verse 12, it is, was what is most likely connected to the end of chapter 7. You see, in the end of chapter 7, Jesus invited all to come to him to be made spiritually whole in himself. He, he offered himself as, as the only one who can satiate the dry and thirsty soul. And this was in close connection with the water-pouring ritual that was found in the Feast of Tabernacles, which we discussed a few weeks ago. And in the passage before us today, Jesus will once again use a picture from the Feast of Tabernacles to declare a truth about himself. And what you find here in verse 12 is the second of seven of the I am statements of the book of John. The first one we found found in John chapter 6, where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And here today before us, Jesus calls himself the light 
of the world. These are not uh, throwaway statements, but are very important things that Jesus says. And this one is closely tied to a lamp lighting ceremony that took place nightly during the Feast of Tabernacles. So just like the water pouring ritual, there was much here that was represented by this ceremony. So at the temple there in Jerusalem, there are several courts, there are several areas outside the temple. And one of those that's not quite all the way in the middle, but it's, it's not far from the middle of the temple, is called the Court of the Women. And there in the court of the women, where, where also the treasury is housed, during this time there would be four large candelabras that were put out there um, for this ritual. And every night, these wicks that were on the candelabras, which by the way, just for your um, edification, the wicks were made out of the, the, the priest's old garments, is what they used to make those. Um, they would be lit every night, all, all of these candelabras, And they would give off brilliant light into the Jerusalem sky. And what they were is they were a reminder to the people of God's presence and nature. Now, if you'll remember back to the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, when God led his people out of bondage in Egypt and into the promised land, he led them by a pillar of cloud at night, by day, and at night that turned into a pillar of fire which was the presence of God with his people. This was his glory that went before him, before the people, showing them the way. That glory that was seen in a great light also rested on the tabernacle and then later on Solomon's temple when you get to the book of 2 Kings and Chronicles. And throughout Scripture, we see that light is a symbol of God's holiness and glory. And we see that the people of God sang about the light of God. Psalm 27 verse 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The people would sing about the light of God. The, the, the word of God. That was given to them through inspiration of God was also seen as light. As we read in Proverbs 6.23, for the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Reproofs and instruction are the way of life. And we see that God's salvation comes to his people in the form, again, described as light. You read in the book of Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, God came from Teman the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light He had rays flashing from His hand and there His power was hidden. And so God is described throughout Scripture and His Word is described throughout Scripture as this light representing His glory and His holiness. We are told that in the end, God will be the light of His people in eternity. And so it is all these things that the people at the ceremony nightly during the feast would celebrate as they lit the candelabras. And as one author tells us, men of piety and good works danced through the night, holding burning torches in their hands and singing songs and praises. So with this background in mind, understanding then that all the people, they understand what's going on here, what they've seen, what's being celebrated, what's being remembered, what's being looked towards every night. 
This is the connection that Jesus draws to himself. He uses another common earthly observance to show that he is the eternal fulfillment when he says here, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. This is the assertion now that Jesus is making. Jesus, amid the backdrop of this ceremony and in fulfillment of all Old Testament pictures, makes this very weighty declaration that he identifies himself as the light of the world. He is the fulfillment of all the pictures of God's word surrounding light. He is the greater fulfillment of a ritual meant to draw people's minds back to the past and point them to the eternal hope of God's kingdom. He is holiness. He is wisdom. He is joy. He is life. And so what Jesus is doing here is making unabashed claim to deity. Because you realize that if this, this ceremony was to draw the people's mind back to the glory of God that led the people out of Israel in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, which it did. Jesus is in sense saying, I am that pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. I am the light. I am God. That is exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's not beating around the bush. He's showing exactly who he is. And notice very carefully the words that Jesus chose here. Jesus does not say, I am a light, or I am a one who shows you the light. He says, I am the light itself. The glory of God, once shown in the temple in glorious light, but now a greater light has come. The one who would be the light of the world. Jesus identifies himself as the one who gives light and life to all. With this declaration comes expected results. So Jesus makes this assertion amidst this backdrop here that he is the light of the world. And that assertion has ramifications as Jesus continues. He says, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So as the light of the world, Jesus makes a promise to all who will come to him. He says, to the one who will follow Jesus, he will enjoy life in and with the light. And it will be a life that is not plagued by darkness. And so we have to understand that just as in Scripture, light often represents right and the holiness of God, right? We saw that in the Old Testament passages. And the glory of God, darkness represents sin and all that is wrong. The light of Jesus gives life. But understand that the end of a life outside of Jesus ends in eternal darkness. Jesus said in Matthew 8, 12, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is talking here of those who, though they were, they were Israelites, were rejecting him. And therefore their end would be to be cast out into darkness. And you must understand. That if you live a life of sin and darkness, you will have your end to be the same. It will be an end of darkness as you are cast into eternity separated from God. That is the price of rejecting Jesus. However, in Jesus... There is found the light of salvation. As we read this morning in Psalm 36, verse 9, For in you is the fountain of life. In your light we see 
light. You see, Jesus is the light. In him, all life is found. That's why I think that statement I read to you this morning from C.S. Lewis is so profound that just as the sun in the sky illumines all things, Jesus himself illumines everything in our lives for us. Because without him, we have no hope. Without him, we see nothing. He is the light of the world. But let us understand here exactly what Jesus is saying and exactly what the ramifications are that he's speaking of. Because I want to make something very clear here. Jesus, throughout his ministry, never talks about what we may call easy believism salvation. He speaks of genuine trust and true discipleship. Jesus says here, notice in verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. He who, what's the next word? Follows, and then he says, follows me. He who follows me. Now, the word follow here is a word that carries the idea of joining in with one to become a disciple of that one. That's the idea behind the word. It communicates to us this truth. Following Jesus means believing in and obeying him. They are one and the same. Obedience naturally follows belief. And Jesus never preached anything different. I mean, we looked at the the, the encounter he had uh, with the woman caught in adultery last time, and he said, go and sin no more, implying that there was to be a change in her lifestyle because of the forgiveness she found in Jesus Christ. And over the years, could we fairly say that some have almost simplified the gospel too much? And before you throw rocks and walk out, okay, let's talk about it. Is it possible that over the years some have simplified the gospel too much? That we merely tell people, hey, if you'll pray a prayer and you'll believe in Jesus, you'll be saved from your sin and nothing else needs to change in your life. You can go about your own business just fine because now you're going to heaven. But Jesus knew nothing of that type of faith. Because that is really just a just-in-case mentality. You see, what that is, that's a mindset of, hey, I want to enjoy the sinful pleasures of this world, but I want to make sure that when it comes down to the end, I don't burn in hell. And my friend, that is not true faith. True faith in Jesus Christ is a life-transforming faith. It is not instant perfection, nor is it going to result in the absence of sin in our lives and in this life, because we're always going to battle against sin. But a life marked and a life marred by consistent sin isn't the life of a true disciple. Therefore, I believe you see so many people who week after week are in church, but they live disobedient lives. They indulge in vices. They are given to consistent fleshly cravings. They they handle their problems in a sinful way. They shirk their God-given responsibilities and more. And all the while, they will fight against you tooth and nail should you call out sin. And they may even have some shred of biblical reason why what they're doing isn't wrong. But all the while, they've also realized something isn't right. And if that's the way you live your life, I believe you have every right to question your faith and trust in God. If you live your life given to sin on a regular basis and given to the the, the cravings of this world, 
there should be a reason that makes you wonder, what does that really mean for me? Because salvation isn't an insurance policy. Salvation isn't, I prayed a prayer so, if, so I can do what I want, and, but, but hey, when it all comes down to it, I've got, excuse the, maybe the, the crude comparison, I've got fire insurance, okay? That isn't salvation. Do you know what salvation is? It's a transfer of your citizenship from the world to the kingdom of God. And that comes with certain ramifications, doesn't it? I mean, if somebody comes from another country to our country, don't we expect that their allegiances are going to shift? Don't we, don't we expect that certain things are going to become true about their lives? It's no different with the kingdom of God. That if you are a disciple, if you are one who professes Jesus Christ, there is a realignment of your allegiance with this new life. And if you claim to be a follower of God, but you live your life in the dark, that doesn't match with who you say your Lord and Savior is. Listen, I'm not here today to make you, you know, oh man, he's just trying to make us all question our salvation. But what I am doing is I'm pointing you to the words and expectations of Jesus so that you can see the truth of what he says. Sin-filled lives are not God-honoring lives. You cannot enjoy peace with God and live like the dark world around you. And if you are God's child, you will feel the conviction of God on your life for sin. Because should you continue in these things, you will then face the chastisement of God on your life. Because God promises this, he disciplines his own children. As Charles Spurgeon said, God never lets his own sin successfully. However, if you continue in your sin and you never feel the conviction of God, you never feel an urgency to change, you never experience the chastisement of God in your life, my friend, could I, just, could I just postulate this to you? Perhaps there's a reason you never feel that, though you continue to do what's wrong. Because you don't belong to God. Could it be that you have never truly come to the light but you really just like the idea of heaven. And don't we all like the idea of heaven? I mean, I like the idea of heaven, so if we just... But that's not what Jesus says. He says that the light comes with the Lord, and his name is Jesus. Obedience to him isn't a, is not a prerequisite to salvation. It is not a guarantee that my faith is really going to stick and I'm really going to get into heaven. It is instead a natural byproduct of our salvation. In a sense, then, let's say it this way. Salvation is simple, but it's not easy. The life of a disciple is, in fact, hard because it's a battle against sin, against the flesh that we live with. And Jesus made it clear that he wasn't interested in making things artificially easy, but in drawing people into genuine faith in himself. And perhaps you've never seen it this way. Perhaps you've always thought that asking Jesus into your heart was something you needed to do to get into heaven, but perhaps you've never heard that God's expectation after, your, after that is for you to live a life that, that follows him. And I'd say to you, it's, it's time to grow in your faith. It's time to dig into God's word and obedience. It's time to address the sins of your life that you know that God's worked on you about, but you continue to give into. It's time to live in the light, because that's what God calls us to do.
And as you might expect, these words that Jesus says here, they're going to stir up a reaction once again by those who hear Jesus speak. And we see that unfold before us now. Because look at the defense that Jesus now has to offer about himself. We see, first of all, in verse 13, the rise of the opposition to this statement. The Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. The Pharisees, who were the religious adherents to and and had the greatest knowledge of God's law, object here to Jesus' claim. And it seems that what they're doing here is they're throwing Jesus' own words back in his face. I would refer you back to John chapter 5, verse 31, where Jesus said, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now, we've already talked about that passage, but just very briefly, in that passage, we saw that Jesus was not saying that his witness was not true. Instead, he was saying that people are not going to believe what I say. He was an indictment on the people around him. He then would go on in John chapter 5 to, in fact, call on several witnesses to his identity as the Messiah and to his being equal with God the Father. But here, the Pharisees, in the hardness of their hearts, took nothing but a combative attitude towards Jesus. Now, I just want you to think for a minute, if you've been with us for any of this journey of the book of John, you've probably seen some things that Jesus has done, and you would come to understand that Jesus, time and again, had already shown exactly who he was. I mean, not to mention the fact that we're now about a half a year away from the time that Jesus will be crucified. So if you take into account all the other things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke record, Jesus has proven time after time that he is who he says he is. His miracles alone showed that he had no equal in the present or the past. And so, as one author so deftly put it, light has to bear witness to itself. The only people who cannot see the light are blind people. And that's exactly who Jesus is dealing with here in the Pharisees. The Pharisees revealed exactly what unbelief does to our hearts. Because at the end of the day, John over and over again brings us to this point that you might believe, that you might believe, that you might believe. What he's showing is we have to make a choice either to believe in God or not. And if we choose to not believe in God, this is exactly what unbelief does to our hearts. It closes them and, and it closes our lives to the truth of God. And yet, Jesus will now answer their accusations against him, exposing them and exposing their unbelieving hearts. We see the rebuttal of Jesus in verses 14 through 18. And Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. So the Pharisees took umbrage with what they claimed was the single testimony of Jesus. They claimed that that there are no witnesses, nothing to corroborate his claims to being the light of the world. So Jesus answers here that even if it was the case, it doesn't change the facts about who he is. Indeed, we must recognize that sometimes the only one who knows the truth about, some, about himself is the person himself. People can say and they can believe whatever they want. 
but they may not have the whole truth. However, Jesus knows the whole truth about himself and is the authority on these things as God. And those people who are standing here before him this day proved quite often that they are ignorant of who he is and what he says. Jesus spoke as the authority on himself. And he judged, he says, with a different judgment. In verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone. I am with the Father who sent me. The Pharisees judged him according to the flesh. That means they only used their earthly standards and judgments to make declarations and judgments about him. But what they don't have is they do not possess the necessary knowledge to judge him rightly. And so they consistently rendered a wrong judgment on his person, on his actions, and on his character. And while these so-called experts on God's law and word sat in judgment of him and so many others, he says that he himself judged no one. And that harkens us back again, I think, to John chapter 3 and Jesus' statement of his mission uh, to Nicodemus on that night that Nicodemus came to him. That Jesus' mission when he came was to come to seek and to save the lost. He came to redeem fallen sinners. He proclaimed a message of salvation. Now understand that this message does include in it the promise of a coming judgment. Jesus does not judge according to the flesh like the Pharisees, and he did not judge at that time, but there is a judgment that will come one day. And that judgment is right and holy Because it is not just the judgment of a man, it is a judgment of God the Father with whom Jesus the Son is one. And so Jesus again here calls on his equality with God the Father as proof of who he is and as validation of his mission. He says that if he did judge, he would do so in perfect concert with God the Father. And one day, Jesus will render to all mankind final judgment. One day, each one of us will stand before him to receive our judgment. And it will be according to the perfect and holy standard of our perfect and holy God. And therefore, Jesus meets the standard of the law and the Pharisees calling for witnesses to confirm his claim. He says there that it is written in their law that the testimony of two men is true. And of course, this is the issue, right, that they're calling into question here, that, that according to the law, according to their law, that, that Jesus hasn't provided uh, another person to, to substantiate his claims. Jesus says he has, that I am the one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me, he bears witness of me. The Father spoke audibly from heaven twice during Jesus' ministry, confirming Jesus' identity. And also we see that Jesus acted time and again in accordance with God the Father's plan and always with God the Father's approval. And so no man can bear witness to who Jesus claims to be because no man can know Jesus fully and completely for he is God. It is only God the Father who can bear witness of who Jesus is. And therefore Jesus as God is the only one who can bear witness of himself. And it is God the Father who confirms these things indisputably. 
And what it comes down to is this. If you will believe in Jesus, you must accept God's word about him. The Pharisees, who were the experts on God's word, who were the experts on the law of God, who were these these men who so religiously held to everything there, they did not truly believe the word of God. For if they did, they would have seen in Jesus the fulfillment of all the prophecies. They would have seen in Jesus the Messiah. My friend, if you are truly going to believe and place your faith in Jesus and follow him, you have to believe the word of God. Because in that word, we find the revelation of God, and we find eternal life. And so therefore, because of what Jesus says, because of those who are opposed to him, we see once again the vision that this causes amongst the people who have heard him speak. We see here in verse 19, the indicted ignorance that Jesus calls these men on. Because then they said to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. So once again, as has been the common theme in the book of John, that those who are opposed to Jesus and his word misinterpret, twist, and mock what he says. When he says here that my father gives witness to me, what's their immediate response? Okay, where's your father? The implication is here, as I've said before, it's, it's very likely that Joseph is dead at this time. He has no one who acted as an earthly father. They're looking around. Where's this father you spoke of who's going to corroborate your claims? And in so doing, what they're doing is they're rejecting Jesus. They're calling for an earthly witness when Jesus has pointed them to the only witness they will ever receive or ever need. And here, Jesus indicts their willful ignorance. He tells them that you don't know me, and you don't know the Father. These men claim to be the authorities on the things of God. And I think it would be very hard to argue that they weren't. I mean, they knew the law backwards and forwards. They knew all the things you were supposed to do or not supposed to do. They knew all the things that people added to it. But it didn't matter how much they knew about the law. They didn't know God. Because if they did know God, they would have known who Jesus was. They didn't truly know the one whom they claimed to serve. They didn't truly know the one for whom they militantly enforced laws. They were only interested in themselves and their own points of view. And so, they continued on in their ignorance. The light of the gospel failing to crack their pride-hardened hearts. And if they knew Jesus, Jesus said, they would have known the Father. Because the way to the Father is through the Son. But they do not. And so once again, we see the impotent opposition in verse 20. These words, Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. So all these things took place in that part of the temple that's called the treasury. And here in the treasury, just again so we understand where this is, there were 13 different treasure boxes that people would come and deposit their offerings for different ministries or or things that they owed according to the laws of God. This also, by the way, was in the court of the women where that lighting ceremony every night had been held. 
It was a busy, it was a public location, ideal for Jesus' teachings. And it was also not too far away from a hall where the Sanhedrin, that governing body of, of Israel, would meet. And yet, once again, though Jesus is standing in the midst of the temple, not far from where the Sanhedrin meets, in the middle of the people, with all of this opposition, you see very clearly, once again, who is in control. It's Jesus. Because though the temple was run by such sinful, self-serving religious leaders, they could do nothing about Jesus at this time. Did you catch that at the end of verse 20? No one laid hands on him. Why? For his hour had not yet come. It was not time for Jesus to die, so he wouldn't. Instead, he wouldn't even be captured. He would continue to proclaim the truth. The light of the world would continue to shine. It would continue to to show the truth of God to all. And this light continues to shine today, showing us the way of God's salvation. Because Jesus is the light of the world, his calling, illumination, and testimony of all things must be embraced. Jesus is the light of the world. It is only through him that we can be saved and given new life apart from our sin. And that life requires us to also submit to him as our Lord. And if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, he is your Savior, but he is also your Master and King. And the life of a disciple is a life devoted to following him, whatever the cost. So first, have you come to the light of the world? Have you confessed him as Savior and Lord of your life? Or have you just liked the idea of Jesus, but never truly given your life and soul to him? You can only find salvation in complete and total faith in him. Because the word of God makes it very clear who Jesus is and what he requires of you. Perhaps in your life you see a, a, light, you see a lack of, of growth or a lack of discipleship in general or in a specific area. Maybe you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but you struggle with growth in him. Could it be that there are things that God has convicted you of that you continue to try to hold on to in your life? Or perhaps you need more personal help from a fellow believer working through the word of God on these things. And I would encourage you, if you are here today as a Christian, you are struggling with sin, you are struggling with growth, you are struggling with things that God has placed his finger on in your life, and you're just I don't know how to deal with that. You can find help. You can find hope. There is victory promised through him. In a place like Beaverton Baptist Church, you can find that help. I would love to help you with that. There are others here who would love to help work with you through the scriptures to find help for your needs from God. Jesus is exactly who God said he is. And he has done exactly what he said he would do. We must come to him for salvation and walk with him in sanctification, living a life honoring to him, filled with the radiance of his light in a dark world. Father, we thank you again for this place. We thank you for the work that you do in our lives week in and week out 
in your word. And Lord, I ask today, for those who are sitting here, for those who hear the words of this message, that you would speak to hearts. Lord, it's not beyond reason that someone listening to this today has wrestled with salvation, or not wrestled with salvation, they've been content to go throughout life thinking, I'll figure that out later. Or maybe they put on the show, they've liked the idea of heaven, they've liked the idea of Jesus, but they've never truly committed their life to the Savior, to their Lord. I pray you would work in their heart today. You would convict them of sin. You would show them your son. That they would come to a relationship with you. Lord, for Christians who are here, who hear these things today, who heard the, what you have said, there are always areas in our lives where we need to grow and change. We understand that. But God, there are also things in our lives we, we don't like to give up. Those, this, this sinful flesh we live with that still loves the old worn paths of sin, or we give into that. We say what we need to say to make ourselves feel better, but we don't ever address it. And Lord, I pray today you would convict of sin. You would show your people what it is in their life They need to give up. They need to change. They need to embrace in order that they may live at peace with you and live in a way that honors you and live in a way that's a testimony for you. Because then, Lord, can we see you more fully and enjoy you for who you are. Lord, I pray that you would work in hearts right now you would help us to do business with you today. That you would help us not to put these things off. We pray as we close our service here in just a few minutes. That you would give us safe journeys home and back again tonight. We may worship you. In your name we pray. Amen.